0: Welcome to Skim This. This week, we're diving right into the headlines. We'll look at progress towards a new Iranian nuclear deal, the clashes in Northern Ireland, and Biden's latest moves on gun control. Speaking of, Biden's making a lot of moves right now, including around infrastructure. Spending money on roads and bridges doesn't sound too sexy, but it's sparking a big debate about taxes. Then we'll go deep on a pandemic habit a lot of listeners say they'd like to kick, drinking more. And we'll end the show with a sample of the soundtrack of the summer that we really wish we didn't have to hear. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to a couple of the headlines from the week's news and give you a little bit of context. First up, the US and Iran are restarting nuclear talks. Here's the context. For the last couple of years, nuclear negotiations with Iran have kind of been a train wreck. In 2015, the US, Iran, and five other countries signed a major nuclear deal. In exchange for Iran limiting its nuclear-related activities, making it way harder for it to build nuclear weapons, some economic sanctions against Iran were lifted. But President Trump pulled the US out of the deal and reimposed those sanctions. Trump said he'd make a new and better deal with Iran, but his presidency ended with that still on his to-do list and Iran enriching more uranium. Now, after a few months of a staring contest between the U.S. and Iran, it looks like the two sides are heading back to the negotiating table. Both President Biden and leaders in Iran want to break bread, though the staring contest isn't completely over either. The U.S. reportedly wants Iran to reduce its nuclear enrichment before undoing sanctions. Well, Iran says the sanctions have to go first. Now that's diplomacy for you. Our next headline is also an international one. Leaders in Northern Ireland have condemned a new wave of violence following almost a week of nightly clashes. The images emerging after several days of violence around the city of Belfast are jarring, showing buses set on fire and rioters throwing bricks and Molotov cocktails at each other. Let's get into the context here recent violence in Northern Ireland is the worst in years. One cause? Uncertainty around what Northern Ireland is going to be like in the post-Brexit world. Ireland, mostly Catholic and an independent country, and Northern Ireland, more Protestant and part of the UK, fought for over 30 years in a period called the Troubles. If you've ever heard Zombie by the Cranberries or Sunday Bloody Sunday by U2, those songs are about that period of time. The two sides eventually made peace in the late 90s, but now that the UK is out of the EU after Brexit, some old tensions are bubbling up again, especially as Brexit has caused a lot of people to take a stand on whether they wanna be more closely linked with the UK or the Republic of Ireland and the EU. That tension isn't the only thing at play here. There's also anger around how police have handled COVID-19 restrictions. Throw in paramilitary groups, some gangs and frustrated young people eager for what the Washington Post called recreational rioting, and there are a lot of potential sparks to this fire. As for what's next, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has said he's deeply concerned, and likely so is the US, which helped broker the original peace deal back in 1998. All right, last headline.
1: President Biden is taking on the issue of gun violence, targeting kits that allow you to build your own gun and stabilizing braces that essentially convert pistols into
0: rifles. Here's what you need to know. Biden's executive actions on guns come in the wake of a number of mass shootings, including in Georgia, Colorado, and South Carolina. With these latest moves, Biden is asking the Justice Department to review federal law around ghost guns, aka guns that can be assembled from pieces with no serial numbers. Those guns are basically untraceable and are appealing for extremist groups and people who intend to commit crimes. So now Biden wants the kits that those pieces come in to be considered firearms, meaning owners have to register them and pay a fee. Biden's also asking the DOJ to publish guidelines for what he's calling red flag legislation. Red flag laws mean family members or police officers can petition the legal system to prevent certain individuals from accessing guns. The president says those laws could have an impact on reducing domestic violence and suicide. While it sounds like Biden is trying to tackle gun control head on, these measures are considered to be pretty modest. Biden himself has admitted there's not a whole lot he can do without Congress, where he would need at least 10 Republican senators on board to pass more gun control legislation. But for now, executive orders might be the best he can do, and the White House is saying these are initial steps. So watch this space. It's been a roller coaster of a week in Arkansas. In late March, lawmakers there voted to ban access to gender-affirming medical care for minors. That means despite what doctors might think is best for their young patients, they can't perform gender reassignment surgery. Also banned? Providing access to reversible treatments like puberty blockers that can be used to stall puberty until someone is ready to decide whether to transition. The bill also lets private insurers refuse to cover gender-affirming care. On Monday, after hearing pleas from pediatricians, social workers and parents of transgender youth, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson vetoed the bill, calling it overbroad and extreme.
1: If House Bill 1570 becomes law, then we are creating new standards of legislative interference with physicians and parents as they deal with some of the most complex and sensitive matters involving young people.
0: But that didn't last long. By Tuesday, the Arkansas legislature voted to override Governor Hutchinson's veto. The bill will become law within the next few months. This is a big deal for a couple reasons. First is the broader political context here. Civil rights groups say measures blocking access to health treatments for transgender youth are the new bathroom bills. They're the latest tool being used by conservatives and state legislatures to target the transgender community. And Arkansas is far from the only state where this is happening. Similar bills have been introduced in over a dozen states, including the Carolinas, Missouri, Alabama, and Tennessee. And second, these laws can have important health consequences. A Cornell University analysis of more than 50 peer-reviewed studies concluded that in 93% of cases, Gender transition therapies like surgery or hormone therapy improved the well-being of transgender individuals. By contrast, measures to make people identify with the gender they're born with is pretty strongly linked to suicide. And while Arkansas's bill doesn't ban transitions altogether, it does mean minors will have to wait until they're adults before pursuing gender transition. A delay, advocates say, could still be life-threatening for some people. If you're interested in whether your state has any votes coming up on bills like this, we've left a link to a bill tracker in our show notes. Last week, President Biden unveiled what he called a -a once-in-a-generation infrastructure plan that would overhaul basically everything, from roads to the electricity grid to water systems and schools. If doing all of that sounds expensive, it is. This infrastructure plan came with a $2 trillion price tag, which left plenty of people saying, where are you going to get that from? Well, Biden has
1: a plan. President Biden wants to partially undo former President Trump's corporate tax cuts to fund his infrastructure bill. He wants to fund it through corporate tax hikes. But can he get it through Congress? The Biden administration wants to hike the corporate tax rate to 28%. Analysts say 25% is more likely.
0: Yep raising the corporate tax rate to 28%, up from where it currently sits at 21%. That may not sound so spicy, but to a lot of people, it is. So we wanted to recap both sides of this heated debate over a seven percentage point tax increase. Let's start with the arguments against raising the corporate tax rate. First up, you'll hear that the more company profits that are paid in taxes, the less money will be spent on things like research and development, hiring more American workers, or building new factories. Second, you'll also hear that the US already has one of the highest corporate tax rates in the world, and that by raising it more, companies will just avoid paying it, or peace out of the US and save some money running their business elsewhere. And finally, you might be hearing right now that the economy isn't in a strong enough position to rock the tax boat at all and that taking a bigger slice of corporate profits just as the economy is starting to recover could stall economic growth. So that's the argument against raising the corporate tax rate right now. The argument in favor of raising the corporate tax rate usually sounds something like this. First, you'll hear that even though the U.S. corporate tax rate is really high on paper, in practice, many big companies pay a lot less than 21%. Last year, Amazon reportedly paid an effective income tax rate of less than 10%. And according to one analysis, companies like Nike and FedEx paid no federal taxes whatsoever. It's not that these companies aren't making billions of dollars in profits, they've just got a really good accountant. So basically, if you're worried about companies not paying their taxes if you raise their taxes, don't worry, a lot of them are already not paying. Second, you'll probably hear some people saying, hey, companies should pay their fair share. After all, companies in the U.S. get access to skilled workers that taxpayers effectively pay to educate, and they put a lot of wear and tear on infrastructure, so they should be kicking in more for everything from education to the roads their trucks drive on. And finally, you might hear those in favor of raising the corporate tax rate citing history they'll point out that the U.S. corporate tax rate was over 50% in the 1950s, over 40% in the 1980s, and 35% before President Trump came into office. So going back to 28% isn't as much of a jump as you might think. So where does that leave us? If this sounds like an issue nobody can agree on, think again. A 2019 study from the Pew Research Center found that half of people who identified as Republicans backed increasing tax rates for corporations and large businesses. And they joined the 84% of Democrats who were already on board. But whatever individual Americans feel, it's the Senate that's calling the shots here. And at least one key Democrat isn't exactly riding right for Biden on raising the corporate tax rate. This week, to try to depoliticize the issue, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called for the creation of a minimum global corporate income tax. The idea is, it would smooth out the differences in corporate tax rates across dozens of countries. Negotiations on that are reportedly underway. In the meantime, Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure plan, just like the trains it hopes to pay for, will likely remain right where it is, stuck at the station. too long, history lessons have glossed over the essential contributions women have made to history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. This podcast from the Wonder Media Network aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, scientists, artists, and more, from antiquity to today, who have shaped our society. Every week, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. And the best part is, each episode is only five minutes long. The bite-sized episodes pack painstakingly researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. You may or may not already know these women, but you definitely should. Follow Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Young people are getting crushed by the burden of student debt.
0: Both on the campaign trail and in office, President Biden has said he's interested in forgiving at least $10,000 of people's student debt, which is a really big deal since an estimated 42 million Americans collectively owe more than $1.7 trillion. Since being in the White House, Biden has started to make some moves. He's canceled debt for 72,000 Americans who've been defrauded by for-profit universities and forgiven debts for anyone with a permanent disability Though both of those policies were actually introduced by President Obama before getting rolled back by President Trump. However, Biden has now signaled he might be interested in going further. Progressives have been asking Biden to commit to canceling $50,000 of student debt for every graduate, something he'd previously refused to do. But now Biden is asking around to figure out how much power he has to cancel that debt on his own. If you're a little confused about Biden's student debt plans, here's where things stand in 60 seconds. While it sounds like Biden is weighing his options, there's no consensus yet on what a big picture fix to student debt could look like. Some on the right say college is a choice and so are the debts that come with it. So it's unfair to ask taxpayers who didn't go to college to pick up the tab. Meanwhile, some on the left say relief from student debts is essential for younger generations to achieve long-term financial stability. Biden has said he'd prefer if Congress took the lead on loan forgiveness, though Democratic leaders say they don't have the votes. Which leads us to what Biden could do with the stroke of a pen, aka executive orders. A 1965 law could give him the power to erase federal student loans, but one, that probably won't cover loans from private companies, and two, Biden's got a lot of thoughts about who should or shouldn't have their loans forgiven. He's hinted that high-income borrowers or Ivy League grads might get less or no relief. So should something get done here, make sure to read the fine print. How'd we do? Want us to skim a burning question from the news on an upcoming episode? Send us an idea to audio at theskim.com. Meet Joan Tucker. She's a senior behavioral scientist at the RAND Corporation. And lately, she's been studying something that's on a lot of people's minds, alcohol.
1: So in this study, which was conducted with my co-authors, Michael Pollard and Hank Green, what we did was survey a national sample of over 1,500 men and women in the U.S. And we did two surveys. One was in the spring of 2019, so well before the pandemic. And the second survey was a year later in like May to June of 2020. And what we found were significant increases in alcohol use among women. So we found a 17% increase in their frequency of drinking, a 41% increase in their days of heavy drinking, which for women is defined as four more drinks on a single occasion, and also 39% increase on a measure of alcohol-related problems, which is capturing things like, is drinking impacting your relationships? which is concerning because we know that women start to have alcohol-related problems sooner than men and at lower rates of use than do men.
0: We wanted to talk to Tucker because a few weeks ago, we asked more than 4,000 skimmers about what their last year has been like, and in particular, what pandemic habit they most want to kick. And one of the top answers was drinking. Skimmers said they're drinking more Drinking five to six nights a week instead of two to three nights before the pandemic. Drinking alone. Someone said, working till 10 p.m., then sitting on the couch and binge eating and drinking till midnight because I deserve it. Someone else told us, I'm drinking when I'm bored or frustrated with the world. Drinking should be fun. Hundreds of skimmers told us versions of this.
1: And Tucker says, you guys aren't alone. The things that we've been thinking about would be increased loneliness, symptoms of anxiety and depression that many of us have felt we know from other studies can increase the likelihood of drinking or escalating to heavier use. We've also heard a lot about how the pandemic has hurt women more in terms of employment. Certainly there have been increased child care responsibilities in homeschooling. And so all these things may be contributing to the increase in in alcohol use and perhaps more so for women. And a year into the pandemic,
0: Tucker says for some people, Zoom happy hours have added up. Those
1: at the time probably felt like short-term strategies for many of us. But now, a year later, for some people, it may have turned into more of a long-term habit. We wondered what we could do about this. So
0: we asked Dr. Sherry Price for some advice. She's a pharmacist and a life coach who works with people who've decided they want to make a change in their life around alcohol use. For her, the work is personal. I started drinking to
2: just take the edge off, relax at the end of the day, de-stress. It was also a tool that I used to transition from my work time to mommy time and home life it uh, started with you know pouring a glass while I was making dinner it was relaxing to me it felt like this is what people do in society when they reach a certain level of income and status and it felt good but that one glass of wine um, just kept leading a little bit to a little bit more and a little bit more so over the course of probably a decade I noticed that my consumption of wine went up over time and I wanted to cut back But I had no interest in abstinence. Instead, she tried some things that you might have heard about a
0: few months ago. I do
2: dry Januaries or sober Octobers, but I found that I came back to the same quantity and the same pattern
0: to my drinking. The same thing happened when she tried some other techniques that she calls magic tricks.
2: So a lot of these things that we read on the internet are like watering down drinks or spacing a drink, then water with water in between, right? I, I, I see how that can be helpful, but I don't see how that gets at the long-term problem. And I think for many people, we think the problem is alcohol. We think if we can just put rules around it, if we could just dilute it, if we can just switch to something we don't like, if we can just control it somehow by not buying it or control our environment, right? Not bringing it into the house, or if we do bring it into the house, just buy a limited quantity. And yes, those do work short-term, I just haven't seen those get at the root of the problem to really change a person's hardwiring in their brain and that over-desire component. So when I started thinking about it as a habit and how do we break habits and create habit formation, different habits, that's when I stumbled upon the tools of cognitive therapy and learning really how to retrain your mind, retrain your brain, and found the tools in life coaching that really empowered me to be in control of my drinking and
0: just become this woman who can take it or leave it. Those are the kinds of tools that Price uses with her clients now, and she has a few techniques she recommends. Though, before we go any further, she also says this approach isn't for everyone. Once alcohol feels
2: like it has completely taken over your life, like you wake up and you wanna start imbibing right away, I think when you feel you cannot make it through the day, and particularly, What I find to be problematic is when you try to reduce or cut back or stop completely, that you get the shakes, the kind of severe withdrawal symptoms that leads to shaking, and those can be life-threatening if they're not managed by a medical professional.
0: But for the majority of people, and even for most people who think they drink a little too much, Price says it's possible to develop a healthier relationship to drinking. And that starts with taking an inventory of how drinking currently fits into our lives and what we perceive to be its benefits and its drawbacks.
2: The first step is just being aware of the current relationship you have with alcohol. And I think for a lot of people, um, that's intimidating and there's a lot of fear to do that. Uh, They don't wanna see all the negative consequences, but I feel if we list out for ourselves, nobody else has to see this list, but if we start listing out exactly how alcohol is not beneficial in our lives. And then I also love for my clients, particularly, we talk about how alcohol is beneficial in their lives, because we really want to understand alcohol's role. If it's for emotional management, if it's to reduce the stress, right, at least that gives us a sense of how we're viewing it. And then we can make other strategies that feel healthier or feel better to the person or don't have the negative
0: consequences that alcohol does. One thing Price says people might find after doing this inventory is that they use drinking as a signal that, hey, the workday's over. And over time, that signal of a shift in the day turns into a ritual, including one you may use five days a week. And so when you have these innate
2: um, curated and cultivated rituals over time, when you start cutting back or when you start changing, of course the brain's gonna feel like, hey, something's
0: different, something's not right here and it's gonna be a little fearful. But Price says even acknowledging that alcohol might be your ritual is a good jumping off point to make changes. And she notes she's not suggesting a radical change in your lifestyle, like becoming a yogi. Rituals can be as large or as small as you want to make them. Most
2: people's activity around alcohol is like two, three, four hours. And all you do is need key tools in your toolbox to get you through the urges or just to get you through the cravings. And most people find they last 20 minutes or less. As long as we can combat that period of time, it's not like we have to fill up the remaining hours worth of time. It's just the brain needs something to latch on to when it's really in that over desire state seeking
0: out alcohol. Price says the most important thing is to find something that resonates with you. That could be all-new habits, like meditation or yoga, or things you already enjoy, like listening to music. There are so many tactics out there, and you just have to learn the right tools
2: to get there. And not punish yourself along the way, not looking at this as something that, you know, you're not bad, or the person isn't bad that over-imbibes. It's just that they've developed a habit, that's all. And we can break those patternings, those conditionings, and those habits.
0: If you or a loved one is struggling with alcohol, we've left some links in our show notes with helpful information. With vaccination numbers increasing every day and summer on the horizon, we've been really looking forward to getting outside. Or we had been until we heard that we're not the only ones getting ready to leave our habitats this spring. Scientists are expecting that billions of cicadas will be emerging from the ground as early as the last week of April. It's gonna be quite the sight. That's Amy Moore, the lead teacher at the Potomac Valley Audubon Society in West Virginia. That's one state that's gonna see and hear cicadas, but it's far from the only one. I'm looking at the map here, and it seems like they're in Pennsylvania, they're gonna be in Virginia, all the way down to Georgia, and all the way up to Michigan. The soil just needs to warm up a little bit more before the bugs come out, but it's gonna happen. It's predicted that last week of May might be that peak time that a lot of them
2: will start to emerge. You're gonna see the nymphs coming out of the ground and start climbing up trees. And then they'll sit there for a good day,
0: For their skin to harden. That's when their wings will, you know, start to grow and then they'll start flying around. If you're wondering, don't we normally get cicadas in the summer? Yeah, but nothing like the billions expected to emerge this year as part of Brood 10, a big cicada reveal party that only happens once every 17 years. The good news?
1: They're going to be really
0: important and beneficial food source for are awesome birds. But there's some bad news too. They might be a little clumsy and fly into you. Which could present some logistical difficulties if, say, you'd already postponed your wedding once.
3: You know a cicada screech when you hear it. And yeah, they are, they're hideous, they're ugly, so they're not even like the cute bugs. (laughs) And they make a lot of noise. That's Jillian Smith. She's the founder
0: and director of One Touch Events, an event planning company in Atlanta, Georgia.
3: I already know that the question is gonna be about, should I move my wedding? Uh, I say no, they don't bite, they don't come and swarm on people, it's just more so of the annoyance of the noise and people are ready to celebrate that they're ready to support you in your love.
0: But there are steps you can take to make things easier if you're planning on being outside, even if you're not that psyched for all these new visitors. Tie up your hair if it's long so the bugs don't get stuck in it and maybe move the wedding drink station indoors And you're gonna have to start planning for the noise. It's gonna be loud. The males are the ones
1: that sing to try to attract the females. And I've heard that listening to them is like standing next to a lawnmower. So love is gonna be in the air and the males are gonna be calling for those females.
0: There's a wedding joke to make there. But Smith says, for real, think about having your wedding band invest in a better sound system.
3: Let's make sure you have a great noise ordinance so you can pump up the music to keep your guests going.
0: As for when we'll be able to enjoy a bug-free summer? If you're only concerned about the cicadas, that's around July. By then, Brood 10 will have mated, laid its eggs, and died. But if your big day is still in that cicada window, Smith says don't let this get in the way of your plans.
3: I think 2020 has made us more on a, if we can, If we can live through that, we can live through a few hundred thousand bugs. This is just nature. It's gonna be different, but it's not gonna ruin your wedding. We have lived through some of the worst of times for our generation. This is just on the bingo card. Cicadas were at my wedding.
0: Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.